All right. This is the TEL podcast where we talk to educate and lead America's business owners, managers, and anybody willing to listen into the 21st century of business. I'm Taylor Lasseter. been missing in action for the last month and a half, done some traveling, went on a hunting trip, and today's very special because we got our first guest. Um, Yep, how's it going? Good, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you do? do? Where are you at? I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law for, I guess I'm in my 17th year. I do uh, criminal defense, family, and personal injury work, and I also produce a hunting television show. What's that called? The Hunt Co. Oh. I watched some of your episodes, um, some of your earlier episodes, and then some of your later episodes to see the contrast. You know, um, when I first started doing business stuff, I was doing videography and photography and stuff like that. And it all started from a vlog. I was like, that vlogging was big, the video log thing. And I was like, quickly realized I hated being in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'd much rather be behind the camera doing stuff, but uh, you seem kind of like a natural at it. I enjoy both sides of the camera, really. I mean, and and you can definitely tell a progression from the first season to subsequent seasons. Uh, all of us who work on the Hunt Co., you know, we're all self-taught. We all do it as a hobby, and <clears throat> it's... Uh, it's something that we always try to get better at, just like with anything else, you know, you want to, you want to up your game and uh, become better at whatever it is you're doing, especially with it being an exciting hobby for us. I mean, we were, we were hunting anyway, and I got this idea that all of these experiences I'm having in in nature uh, in the woods, hunting these animals, I need to share that. And I know that we're losing numbers and the practice of going out and getting your own food is something that, uh, is, is becoming less popular or has become less popular over the years and the decades because we just don't have to and to to be able to share experiences i have and hopefully get other people excited um that's that's part of why i probably the main reason why i wanted to start the hunt foe and and start filming and sharing my experiences but yeah i like i like being on both sides of the camera there's a Part of me that obviously I want to hunt and 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 show off and share what what I'm doing and and share the experiences I have, but there's also a creative part of me that wants to um, wants to create content. Want you know I want to create art, and uh, so it's more than just hitting record. Um, I wanted to 
share it in a way that was enjoyable and and easy to digest and and entertaining, but also educational. So um, yeah, I, I always really wanted to to get better at filming um, and get better at production and continue to put out a good product for people to watch and hopefully get them excited and recruit more people into this activity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, you know, you always hear people talking about how big storytelling is. And the thing that's kind of interesting, I just went on my first hunting trip up to Montana and it's so hard even in pictures and stuff to really encapsulate what it is you're seeing in that experience but like you know i've been watching hunting videos and stuff wanted to go hunting for forever and i finally did it and i go to montana probably one of the best places to go to do that i mean it's a once in a lifetime for a lot of people and uh like i would take pictures i sent you a few of them and it was like it makes the mountains look small like you can't really take it all in. I'm doing all these panoramic videos and pictures and stuff, trying to like, look what I did. And it's like, you just can't breathe. There's the air that you're breathing. It's so crystal clear. It's quiet. I got tinnitus from the military. So I just hear we, <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm, I'm so hooked on hunting now. Like we didn't get anything. Um, I had a one shot, one, like one opportunity to do it. And I kind of blew it. Um, but, I just I I really appreciate the the popularity of hunting that we're getting now. Um, you know, Joe Rogan talks about it all the time. You got you know Cam Haynes and like John Dudley and all those guys that are are telling stories about it and like getting people more involved. And I think it's important. I think it's actually getting a lot more popular now, especially with the cost of food going up. Um, but yeah, I mean, what what caused yeah, uh, I mean, what was the catalyst of the YouTube channel? I guess. Well, we actually started out on uh, on traditional television. We started out on the Pursuit Channel, and I was involved with a couple of other shows. And then I decided I wanted to to create my own and and call my own shots. So we were on the Pursuit Channel for uh, for three or four years. And then we were on other streaming um, platforms like Carbon TV. Uh, we're still on Amazon Prime and, and some other streaming platforms right now. But with YouTube, you know, anybody can, anybody in the world at any time during the day can find one of our videos and watch as little or as much as they, they want. It's very accessible and easily digestible because you can you can start and stop any mm -hmm. anytime you want moving from tv to streaming i remember watching a ufc fight one time and um i i figured out that i i had to stream it rather than actually buying it through pay-per-view and watching it on regular cable and i thought to myself you know if something as big as the ufc see streaming as an opportunity then it's good enough for me how many years ago was that um probably about four years ago i would say um i think we've been we've been on amazon prime for yeah for about three or four years 
And uh, is that called Hunt Co. Also, uh, same. Yeah, okay, same. the exact same content. We we just took what was on what was on uh, TV, and we started loading it uh, to the streaming platforms okay, yeah, nice. and uploading it to YouTube. But then we also continued to create new content. So I still create uh, episodes just as I would when I was doing it on traditional television. Um, just this past year, we started changing our time format, um, focusing more on kind of the YouTube length, uh, links of episodes that are more popular on, on YouTube as opposed to doing exactly 20 minutes and 30 seconds for an episode will one episode might be 10 minutes or one episode might be 12 minutes and 18 seconds or you know we don't constrain ourselves to a particular uh time period it's just whatever content we have we edit it and use it and that's whatever time it becomes that's what it is so um i would say the the short answer to that question is is you know what was the catalyst for YouTube? Was just the availability. I mean, if my original intent, my original goal was to educate and entertain people and recruit people into the activity of hunting, then hopefully I can reach more people um, with the more platforms I'm on. Uh, and also, it's just it's so much easier to. Um, uh, to do YouTube versus um, all of the logistic uh, administrative issues there are with doing traditional television. And I mean, I would ask the question who who watches cable TV anymore. I mean, it's, it's really old people. (laughs) I look at, I look at my children and, and they have zero interest in TV. Mm -hmm. In fact, they call it old time TV, old fashioned TV. It has commercials and uh, they don't want to watch cable TV. They want to watch YouTube or something that's streaming and they have the freedom to pick and choose what they watch and how long they want to watch it. And they can start back up if they have to stop. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's just a, a very YouTube's an awesome platform, very accessible, available to everyone. Right now, because you're going from like Amazon to YouTube and stuff like that, I'm assuming you guys own the rights to all of your all of your content. That's correct. Yep i i re, I retain um, all of the uh, the intellectual property rights to everything. I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah, that's great. I know uh, Andrew Schultz, uh, one of the comedians, I don't know if you've heard of him. He had a thing where he was going to go to a stream streaming company and then it, something happened and he ended up buying the rights back from them and doing it on his own and he made like way more money. Mm-hmm. Now he owns it. Yeah. yeah. And he was on a podcast recently talking about how um, now because he owns it and he knows exact numbers that came in he knows how much it's worth and so he's like now i know ideally i'll be bigger by the next time i do a do a special and so like i can make way more money when i was on cable i would get nielsen ratings like a quarterly report Mm -hmm. and um and I would get a little bit of information through my agent um, when I was just doing streaming. But with YouTube, 
I have a lot more access to who is watching, when they're watching, how many people are, are watching. I like that control of knowing um, what's happening with my content and being able to change and pivot according to what's most popular, mm-hmm. what people want. Uh, I can I can pivot more in real time because I can pull up my yeah. my app and look at it almost in real time mm-hmm. of who's watching and uh, what's uh, what content is being viewed the most and and open idea in my head okay we need to do more of this right so uh, I do like that access to information that I have uh, through through the YouTube platform yeah for sure um, so what is your favorite type of hunting well archery hunting okay I, I do everything with a bow and arrow uh, I love firearms. I love to shoot firearms. I own plenty, mm-hmm. probably too many firearms. <laughs> uh, I have hunted before with with firearms, but there came a time, and for me, this was around 2010, 2011, where it just didn't blow my skirt up anymore, uh, hunting with, with a firearm. Right. And I got so excited for archery season, it's it's a longer season, mm-hmm. so there's more opportunity to go out and hunt. And knowing that I have to put myself so much closer to that animal and the challenge that comes along with that. So uh, as far as the type of weapon that I use, by far archery hunting. Now, as, as far as the, the type of animal that I hunt, Anything that's legal. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything that's legal, anything that's in, in season, uh, I'm happy to, to hunt anything. Um, I have some, some alligators you can see here in my office going down and, and hunting with, with Randy Dumars at Orlando Gator Hunts and Bow Fishing in Florida. He, uh, he saves back a couple of tags for me every year and getting to, Getting to hunt a prehistoric creature with with a bow and an arrow, uh, that's it's tough to beat the excitement that oh, comes yeah. along with wrestling an alligator. <laughs> so uh, if I had to choose one particular animal, uh, I would I'd probably have to say the alligator hunt that I that I do every year. I'll harness your inner Steve Irwin. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know shot placement obviously is a big deal more so on a bow than it, it can be with a gun is, is that true or is it that kind of i think with a with a firearm there's certainly uh more room for error mm-hmm. uh because of the shock of uh of a bullet hitting uh, a body um you don't have that type of impact and and shock that that you get uh, with a bullet when you're when you're shooting an arrow uh, you might if you have a fast bow you might be shooting a hunting arrow 300 to 320 feet per second whereas a firearm is going to be shooting 2500 to 3000 feet per second right so there's a difference in, in impact there and shot placement does become very important and that's something that I take very seriously I I try to shoot my bow um, 
at least off and on, occasionally year round. Uh, I I don't put my bow in a case and at the end of hunting season and then pick it back up right before hunting season starts. I I enjoy going in the backyard and and shooting at targets and shooting three D tournaments. So anytime I'm behind my weapon and there's a beating heart on the other end, I try to take that very seriously and and uh know where on that particular animal that I'm hunting is the best shot placement and feeling the confidence through my, my practice that I can put my arrow there. Right. I I watched the uh I guess your latest episode on YouTube and uh I was noticing one of the deer was like jumping the what do you call it? Jumping the string? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. Yep. How? How the heck do they they're pretty amazing creatures. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that, that was a hunt down in Texas just last year. I had an amazing opportunity at the Hapgood Ranch. Um, and we had three shooter bucks on three consecutive days come out in front of me. I mean, for people who, who archery hunt or, or, hunt at all you know that that's a rare opportunity to to get one mm-hmm. good shot at an animal but to have three and three consecutive days this this ranch was the Hapgood ranch was really such an awesome place to hunt and so the first two days i had these opportunities and i mean nothing bad happened i, I put my pin my sight pin where i wanted to to hit the deer um i waited until you know they looked calm to me and took the shot and both of those first two deer just dropped yeah. you, we, we call it jumping the string but really they're ducking the string so the sound of the the bow going off uh a deer will hear that and just automatically Drop to its belly. Wow. Uh, put its be- belly on the ground practically. And because you're shooting a weapon that's 300 feet per second versus 3,000 feet per second, you know, it just takes longer to get there. Right. And you're at a closer range. But like I say, they're amazing animals and, and they can jump the string. And, and sometimes that has happened and, and you end up hitting the animal in a bad spot. Mm-hmm. And it either makes for a long blood trail or you just don't recover the animal. And that's just the reality of archery hunting. Fortunately, with, with both of those first two shots, the deer ducked the string. The arrow went straight over its back. Uh, didn't touch anything but, but hair. So neither one of those deer were injured. And then on the third day, I don't know. I guess that particular buck was in a different mood and just didn't <laughs> jump my string as much. Uh, put a good shot on it, and it died within about 100 yards. Yeah, that's cool. So I was really fortunate to not only not injure those first two bucks, but also to continue to get the opportunities there at the at the Hapgood Ranch, um, because that's a, that's a heartbreaking experience as a hunter, whether you're bow hunting or rifle hunting, to uh, to hit an animal and not not recover it. Right. Yeah, I was. I mentioned earlier. I had one opportunity to actually get something when I was up, up hunting, and so like that morning, it was 
it was just pissing rain on us all morning and i had to hike up this real thick brush side of the mountain to get to where we were and so i was kind of pissed off i was like sucks and uh so i decided to go down onto the dirt road and i was following some tracks on the road and i had my rifle slung and i'm just kind of like i'm not even trying to be quiet i'm just walking like oh man this sucks and i happen to look up and there was there was two bucks and a doe a mule deer right in front of me they were probably like 10, 10 yards away and they're all looking at me you know they're all alert that i'm there and i think i i wasn't sure how much movement i could get away with and so i'm moving like ultra slow and by the time i finally got my rifle up they were like humping away and i was thinking about it like okay if worst case scenario is that they run away just get your rifle out like I mean, you're either going to be able to get it on or you're not going to. So don't worry too much about the noise. Am I right in thinking that? Or is it just kind of like every single time you go out, if you get those opportunities, it's just different every time. But isn't that what is so cool about uh, about the adventure of hunting and being in nature? I mean, if you're playing basketball or if you're playing football, you're always on the same field or the same court. You know, the free throw line is always 15 feet away. The basket is always 10 feet off of the ground. When you're hunting and out in nature, it's different every time. And sometimes it's raining on you. Sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's cold. And you have to play that weather in your favor. If you were able to walk up to within 10 feet, uh, 10 yards of uh, a group of mule deer, the wind must have been in your favor. You must have had the wind in, in your face and you were doing something right. Mm-hmm. You you obviously did everything right <laughs> up until I didn't the know I was doing shot. anything right. Yeah, yeah. So you put yourself within bow range of, of animals, you know, and you were right there in their living room. Right. You know, you were on their turf. So that's that's what's so cool and challenging about uh, the activity of hunting and and trying to outsmart these creatures of of nature, and you know, I spent I spent six years archery hunting before I drew my bow back on it. Oh wow! So I've I've had these experiences, yeah. And you know, fortunately now I can say that I've you know been six su- you know successfully killed more animals than I can even count, but um. For a long time, I hunted and experienced nothing but failure. Mm-hmm. And each time I experienced a failure, I learned from it and became a better woodsman, became a better hunter because of that failure. And, and I think that you'll you'll notice that as well the next time um, uh, you're you have an opportunity. You know, you'll think back to the time that well, there could be an animal anywhere mm-hmm. you know if i'm if i'm hiking in a, in a brushy area and my vision you know my my line of sight isn't great i could walk up on an animal at any time and you really do you have to be ready at all times yeah you can sit there for hours and hours and hours or walk around for hours and hours and hours and not see anything but what are you missing while you're out there you know what are you right what are you not seeing that was actually there so you really have to be on high alert at all times. Yeah, there was uh that was about halfway through 
like my, we were about a week in the woods. Um, that was about halfway through the week. And then toward the end of the week, we're like, okay, well, we know where they are. So we're going to try to corral them in this area. We know when they get scared, they go up into this real thick stuff where we could follow them, but we're just going to scare them away. And we didn't want them to get scared over onto the other side of the mountain. We would never see them again. So we're kind of playing the different roads, the different switchbacks up the mountain, kind of spreading out and stuff. And we were, we saw one, it was probably 1500 yards away or so. And we're like, we're going to try to get closer. So we're going to go farther up the road. And I was just like, there's birds flying around and you hear different animals making noises and stuff. And I'm just like, I wonder if they're like warning them. The other animals are in cahoots, like telling them where we are and stuff. And then like, sure enough, there was a bunch of does like by the, by the road that we were on. We had no idea. And so we got closer and they like spooked up the road and then luck went up into the thick stuff. And we were just like, <laughs> dang it. Yeah. And sometimes as, as you become a, a better woodsman you'll realize this you can use those other creatures in your favor mm -hmm. so you think to yourself and is this bird warning a deer that i'm coming or uh, uh or is this is this one deer going to all of the other deer and telling them that there are hunters in the area sometimes you think stuff like that yeah. like how can i possibly not be getting a shot right now after mm -hmm. a week of hunting but you can also use those signs in nature to uh, to help you and what you're doing. For example, if you're sitting in a tree stand and you hear squirrels barking all of a sudden, you know you might pop your head up and they might be barking at a at a deer walking in, yeah. and that's and that's your alarm or a bear or a bear. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, so you'll you'll learn to read those signs like the signs of nature mm -hmm. as you become a better woodsman and use those signs in your favor yeah yeah my uh my buddy that i was up there with he lives up in in montana and so he's been hunting for years and so he was the one that took me out he went back a couple times after i left and uh he was hunting in this the same area i think <clears throat> and he had like a giant buck that he was like chasing he sent me pictures of the tracks and they're probably double the size of what we were looking at when we were up there and they were big he thought it was an elk maybe because of how big they were, but he, he saw it, it blew at him and it like scared him. And, uh, he just, he couldn't get, he couldn't get to a spot where he could get a shot on it. And it just makes you think like these, these animals, there's a, only a few things that they do. And evading predators is basically the main one. They eat, sleep, poop, and evade predators. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like they're they're like, look at these amateurs, you know. Do you find yourself um, as you get older doing less hiking around and doing more uh, like tree stand type of stuff, or do you still get after it? Well, I tell you what, you this kind of goes back to your your question before about what's my favorite type of hunting i really enjoy the strategy of tree stand hunting mm -hmm. to be able to go in before the season or even during the season hike around take a look at the sign that i've learned to read and determine strategically where can i put myself to have an opportunity to uh to be successful at the animal that i'm hunting 
So I really enjoy setting tree stands, moving them around. Uh, it's like a chess match in nature. And uh, so I've always, even when I was younger, enjoyed tree stand hunting. I had an accident in 2016 where I fell out of a tree and uh, banged up my body pretty good. Uh, since then, I, I, I've recovered, but I just feel my body. I feel the pains more now as I've gotten, as I've gotten older. Uh, so if I have the opportunity to set in a single spot that I've scouted out, I prefer doing that, but sometimes you just have to get up and run and gun and, and that's the way it is. I, uh, I killed a, a, a really nice Roosevelt elk in Oregon five or six years ago. And I think we hiked 42 miles that, uh, that week. Um, so depending on the type of hunt you do, you, and you just pivot and, right. and do what you need to do to be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know up in Montana, like basically everything that you can think about hunting is up there. Like we saw tracks for everything, giant mountain lion tracks. Like we, we saw some elk activity, but it, it seemed more like they were just passing through the area because toward the end of the week, we didn't see anything. Um, but it was like, I was starting to get the idea, like my body's getting broken. We're a week out hiking every day and i'm just like dude my legs are killing me mm -hmm. and toward the end of the week there's a couple storm cells that moved in so we had like a foot foot and a half of snow that we're hiking through toward the end of the week and i was like okay i think i've got it there's three types of hunters there's like road hunters who just drive around on their truck look for movement maybe get something you got guys that do the tree stand stuff like what you do and then there's dudes like my buddy who like to hunt all over dots green earth and just hike around and go up and break your ankle and your leg and stuff, doing all this stuff. And I was like, I think I might be a tree stand guy. What? I think I might do that next time. I, I have those friends as well who are particularly, particularly my hunting buddies who live out West. And that's just the type of hunting they do. They, they move, they hike and they scout and, and they spot and stock. Uh, my, my friend uh, took me on the Roosevelt. Uh, um, he told me, he said, be prepared to walk and be prepared for the hills. So I trained, uh, I, I hiked and 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 did uh, did some workout stuff for eight months solid before I went on that hunt in Oregon. And uh, by the time I got there, by the time the hunt came up, I felt like I was I was prepared physically to do it. I was in the best shape probably that I'd been in since college. Uh, so yeah, I mean, just like. Just like with life or business, you know, you you pivot to what you need to do. And even though I fancy myself a tree stand hunter, there are times when you just got to get down, especially during turkey season. Uh, you got to get down and you got to go, you know, use calling techniques and find the animal and set up and in a different spot that you than you thought originally would be the spot to be. You know, you you got to be, you got to be where the animal wants to be, not where you think they're going to be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it it takes some pivoting, and and you learn that as a hunter, as you as you grow and learn as a hunter and a woodsman, you learn um, different types of hunting techniques and strategies, and and learn that 
sometimes you just have to get down and get on the move. Uh, I'm glad that I don't. Uh, I don't hike 42 miles on every hunt that I do, though. I think the most we hiked while we were up there was like 15. Mm-hmm. That was a long day. Um, but yeah, it was a lot was, of miles in it, one day. It was a lot of miles yeah. and going up mountains part of it. And you're in snow, so it like feels double the, the length. You're like, man, I swear we've hiked 30 miles today. Nope, the truck's right over there. Yeah. yeah. So um, shift gears a little bit into what you do for a living. Uh, as an attorney, explain kind of how how you got into that. Um, what what made you want to be an attorney? Well, funny story. Actually, I got drunk one night and ended up in law school. Uh, I was a uh, I was an athlete in college. I played baseball and basketball in college, and I was a PE major. After I finished with my eligibility and I was finished playing sports, I quickly realized that. I, I was losing interest in coaching. Uh, I learned quickly that uh, as much as I enjoyed playing sports, I didn't necessarily want to be a coach. So I, I really was stuck at this point um, uh, and close to graduation where I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. <clears throat> so I ended up going out with some friends one night and uh, I talked to a guy who was in law school at the time and we ended up having a really long conversation about law school. And I literally went out the next day after a long night in the bar and, and bought the LSAT study book and, and started practicing for the LSAT. Wow. Next thing I knew I was in law school. So yeah, I I quite literally got drunk one night and ended up, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ended up studying for the LSAT and, and eventually getting into law school. That's so funny. Not a not a, a technique I would recommend to most people who are distra- trying to decide a, a career path, but that's that's how it worked for yeah, me. That's hilarious. Do uh, because I, I, I'm not familiar with how the process goes of law school and everything. I know I've got a friend of mine that um, she she was a police officer and then got hurt. She was re- like retired for a little while. And then later in life, she decided she wanted to go to law school. This was in California at her graduation party. She had all the books that she had to like basically memorize. And I was like, dude, now I know it's California. So it's like probably one of the biggest legal code books that you got to know sure. through. But uh, was that, was it pretty daunting? Like after you got over the hangover and you realized you're in your law school now? Well, so just to explain the the process more fully, you've got your undergraduate degree. So however long that takes, four years, or in my case, it was six years. Uh, And then you go straight into a postgraduate doctorate program for law school. So you take the LSAT, depending on what you score on your LSAT and your undergraduate GPA, that will tell you what tier of law school you can get into. So you start applying and uh, get accepted into law school, hopefully, and and then you've got three years of full time, fifteen hours per semester. So six semesters of fifteen hours a semester over three years. I think that turns out to be ninety hours uh, that you take uh, during uh, during law school. So it, it is a really intensive program, and I remember. Uh, 
a saying that someone told me when I was a first year law student, they'll, they'll say that they scare you to death your, your first year, work you to death your second year, and bore you to death your third year. And that, that turned out to be pretty true. I mean, I was scared out of my boots that first year, and uh, it's the, they use the Socratic method in law school. So you walk into class and your, te- your professor walks in and, and just falls on people at random. And you have to be ready every day. You have to be prepared. Uh, so I was able to, uh, to get by without doing a ton of work in undergraduate school. And when I got into law school, there's so much reading and, and reading comprehension is so important that I basically had to learn how to read and learn how to study again. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you have to be ready every day. Yeah, I'm sure that weeds out a lot of the people that aren't really in it, too. It does. You see a lot of people dropping out that mm-hmm. first semester. But but once you've paid for a semester of law school, you're pretty well so financially committed that you're not leaving oh, yeah. after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Um, you're a uh, criminal defense and personal injury? I do criminal defense, personal injury, and then family law. And family law. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um do you pick what field specifically you go to out of law school or is it just? Yeah. So when you, when you get out of law school, it, well, first of all, it, to back up a little bit in law school, you're, you're learning theory. So you're exposed to a little bit of everything. Um, in, in your last couple of years, you're able to pick and choose a little bit and, and elect certain classes over others that you can take. Uh, but generally speaking, you're exposed to a little bit of everything in law school. So while you're in law school, kind of learn the stuff that you're interested in and the stuff that you just hate. Uh, and I knew right away that uh, because of personal experiences with my father being killed in an accident, I knew that I wanted to do personal injury law. And uh, then while I was in law school during the summers, I got a job at the prosecuting attorney, a local prosecuting attorney's office. So I became really interested in criminal law, and I really didn't care which side I was on, prosecution or defense. Uh, I was just really interested in criminal law. And then I just happened to do really well in law school in my family law class. So I knew that uh, family law was probably something that I would, that I would be good at. So, yes, when you start practicing, assuming you can get enough clients to pay the bills, you can kind of pick and choose what what it is you want to do. Some people, it's just necessary for some people to take whatever comes in the door. Uh, fortunately, I had some, some success early in my career in some pretty big criminal cases and kind of became known in my area for criminal work. So I was able to kind of structure my practice and narrow my practice around uh, uh, the things that I enjoyed doing. Right. Okay. Um, I know me personally, there's a lot of times where I'll be like, man, that's not right. Like you could probably sue for that. But it, I feel like a lot of times it's uh for the person who feels like they're wronged, it's scary to an to approach an attorney, and like nobody knows how to vet attorneys. We don't know like what their intentions are. 
I know a lot of buddies that have gone through divorce and been through like three or four attorneys. It's the same case. And it feels like they're getting taken advantage of just for the money. Do you, do you see that as like a common trend or is that just like what Hollywood has portrayed lawyers to be these sleazeballs over the years? No, I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right in that instead of dealing with a product, you're dealing with a human being and we're all different, right? So, but similar to buying a product, uh, for example, if you're going out to, to purchase a new hunting rifle, you're not just going to show up at the store and start looking at the one that suits your eye. We've, we're in this information age where we can educate ourselves prior to making that purchase or making that decision to hire an attorney where there's so much information out there about products or, or people. Uh, you're going to research the type of rifle that you want and you're going to read reviews on different models of that rifle or different brands of that, that rifle. And you're going to go into the store knowing, uh, having a more narrowed approach at specifically which rifle it is that you want to get that fits your budget, that's going to suit your needs. But same way with an attorney. I mean, uh, we have Google reviews, we have peer reviews, uh, we have state bar associations. If you if you make just a little bit of an effort to uh, to research uh, different attorneys in your area, then I think that you can at least go in with a little bit more of an intelligent uh, choice mm -hmm. uh, when you're when you're trying to make that decision to to hire an attorney. And then, you know, because you're dealing with another human being, I think it's smart to sit down and interview, because uh, remember, the attorney works for you, not the other way around. So just like if you were hiring someone to work for your business, you could, you know, you would go and interview a handful of attorneys. And I have that happen to me. I mean, I uh, people come in here pretty often and say, okay, well, I've talked to a couple of other attorneys before you, and I still have a couple of other other attorneys to talk to after you. I'll give you a call and let you know um, if I decide to hire you. And that doesn't bother me one bit. I think it's an intelligent way to make sure that it's one thing. You want an attorney who's good. Uh, you want an attorney who knows what they're doing, but you also want an attorney to work with that you that you fit well right. with yeah you want an attorney you're comfortable with so i think with a little bit of effort and a little bit of research uh it doesn't really have to be a daunting task or an intimidating uh, process to hire an attorney yeah the uh um a lot of attorneys that are i keep bringing up hollywood because i feel like that's people's only unless you've worked with attorneys before it's like their only view of what sure. what they are and a lot of times they show like these guys that are like these hot shots. They win every case, but they're they're just like morality is just not there, right? Like yeah. they're not in it for the right reasons and stuff. So I feel like Google reviews where it's like actual personal counts and it's not doctored, where people are like, this guy is really good, but he's also kind of shady. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, 
first of all, I want to say for for the profession as a whole, we we're we're governed by state bar associations, and before we even get to set for the bar exam, we have to go through what's called a character and fitness test, and it's like the biggest background check that you'll ever go through in your life. Um, you have to disclose where you've lived, who you've worked for, any trouble you've gotten into, uh, any disciplinary actions in school or jobs. It's a really long vetting process that the, the, the state bar associations put you through. And that's before you, you can even sit down and take a bar exam. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, we, we have the, uh, the ethics committee. So, uh, if you hire me and I do something that you think is unethical, you can call and make a bar complaint. So any of my hundreds of clients or thousands of clients can, can go in or could have gone in at any time and filed a bar complaint against me. We're watched pretty darn closely uh, by our state bar associations. And I think it's, it's pretty hard uh, to get away with consistently being an asshole now okay. uh i might be able to get away with it here and there or or once or twice but uh to to consistently be an asshole or be a liar it's it's kind of hard to get away with that and right. people people aren't stupid people see through that and they notice it and not just the clients but judges and other attorneys uh can can file bar complaints as well so that's one thing that you don't see in Hollywood is is the fact that we're pretty tightly regulated as as a profession. So um, uh, it's it's difficult for us to do bad things. And and going back to what you said about Google reviews, I mean, if you if you look me up, you'll see positive and negative reviews. You'll see people who have had bad experiences in their case whether that's my fault or not right. and they're not afraid to put it on the internet <laughs> so, but i kind of take the i kind of take the stance that i let people say what they want to say i've survived for 17 years by mostly word of mouth advertising and i feel like uh, overall my my reputation is is a good attorney is is pretty good um uh, I may not always be the best at customer service or I may not always smile, but I feel like I know what I'm doing in a courtroom and, and practicing law. And, and I think that when someone is experiencing a legal problem, uh, they want someone who they place a high priority on someone who's no, who knows what they're doing versus right. someone who's particularly friendly. Yeah. So I kind of take the, stance that whatever's put online about me i i don't necessarily respond or try to make an argument you know i just it's there and and people can make their own choice and decide if i'm the right fit for them or not yeah yeah no that's good um now you do you own this firm or i do so i opened my own practice in 2014 I worked for for other offices, other attorneys uh, uh, from 2005 to 2014, and then opened my own practice. Then, how does that differ from working in somebody else's business to starting your own? Well, when you're working for someone else, you know what your paycheck's going to be. 
uh, you know, that you're going to get, hopefully, you know, that you're going to get your paycheck. Um, and going out, I remember the, the, when I first went out on my own, it was, it was very scary, you know, uh, because now I have this bank account that only has my name on it. And, there's no guarantee that any money is going to drip into that. Bank account. Yeah. So, uh, fortunately the, the clients came and the business came and I've always been able to pay myself and my employees. And again, I think that goes back to just word of mouth and, and having a good reputation as a, as a strong attorney. Um, but it's, it's scary. I mean, branding too. Yeah. Branding. The cool, uh, yeah. Basically, your look. Sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> this is bearded, bearded dude. That's basically your yeah, your logo. Mountain man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what has it been? Eight or nine years later, and uh, I still get nervous. I mean, um, you know, just because I have paying clients today doesn't mean that I'll have the same paying clients next month. So, uh, it's a constant. Uh, stress of, of being an administrator and a business owner versus just practicing law. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, I know like people don't really think of that. I think whenever they go into a law firm and talking with the attorneys that, that are there of the personal connection that you have to have to the fact that you get nervous still, I think probably shows that you care. I don't know if I was a guy looking for an attorney, if you were just this like, didn't really care. Like you're just another number coming and talking to me. If you were like that, I don't think many people would trust that person. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I take that very seriously. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't give myself a big budget for advertising. Uh, I, fortunately I've always been able to survive on mostly referrals and word of mouth. And I know when I'm dealing with you, you have family, you have friends, and you're going to talk about your experience with me because most likely this is the worst or most stressful time of your life when you're, when you're working with me. So it's going to become a core memory, and you're going to talk about your experience, and I'm a part of that experience with you. I'm right there by your side throughout that worst time of your life. So I know how important it is for me to provide a, a good service to my client because when they leave, they're either going to speak poorly or, or speak highly of me. And that's how I get my business. So, uh, yeah, I, I, take, I take a client's experience with me very seriously. Once you're in the profession, how do you stay abreast of all of the new changes in laws and culture and like things that are going on? What do you what do you do to prepare for all that? Yeah, good question. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I think that's why why they call it the practice of law. Okay, yeah, uh, we're we're practicing and we're learning every day. Yeah, um, you know there are a number of different ways to keep up with changing laws. Uh, the most simple of of which is uh, you walk into a courtroom and you try to make one argument and the judge says, nope, that's changed. Uh, 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 but you, you try to keep up with changing laws by paying, atten paying attention to uh, 
uh, new opinions that come down or new statutes that are passed. You read the news, you, you, you're part of, of chat groups, you're part of listservs. I mean, we're, again, we're in the information age. So that information is out there. You just have to go get it. Right. Do, uh, is there ever cases that come down where they give the verdict and it was like, I mean, you're in either personal injury or criminal defense. One that comes to mind is the like McDonald's spilling the coffee on the arm and it was some huge multi-million dollar thing where that comes down and you're like, really, that's the case law that we have to work with now. That just sets a precedent that it opens it up for so many other like frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. So, so the law is kind of like a living creature and it's constantly uh, evolving and changing. Right. So, and, and I see, I see decisions that are made all the time that I think, well, that's just wrong. That's just incorrect. Whether it be in someone else's case that's popular in the news or just a local case that I'm working on and the judge rules against me and I think to myself, well, I have to deal with this, but at least I can think in my, my own mind that the judge is just flat out wrong. So, um, yeah, you have to just like, it's like with hunting, changing weather, changing conditions changing animals, changing strategies. You just have to pivot and, uh, and and use what you've got to work with. How many cases would you say on average where you can settle them out of court versus ones where you have to go to trial you've had to deal with? 99% out of court. Yeah. That's the other thing that's, uh, that's different about what you see in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you see a case that begins and and from the intake to the end of the trial in one hour, you mm-hmm. know, or, or two hours with a movie. My cousin uh, Vinny. Comes yeah, to mind. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if the uh, case was actually portrayed how it happens in a, in a movie, it would be really long and it would be really boring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, as far as settling cases, I mean, I think of myself as a problem solver. And uh, if I can solve a person's problem before we have to roll the dice of going in front of a judge or a jury mm-hmm. who knows nothing about their life, who knows nothing about their case and their situation, then I've succeeded. Right. Um, I think a good example is dealing with, with two people who are going through a divorce. So my client and the other party, they know themselves, their relationship, their property, their children. They know all of that better than anybody else does. So if I can help them settle the, the dispute that they have with all of the things they've gained in their marriage before it has to go in front of a judge who knows nothing about mm-hmm. their lives. All the then, dirty laundry comes out. Yeah, yeah. Now. yeah. And, and so I feel like that's a great success. Yeah. <clears throat> the same way in criminal law. I mean, I know judges that I practice in front of well enough that I can sit down with you, let you tell me the story about your case on day one and tell you how, it, how it's going to end up. I mean, most of the time I can tell you how it's going to end up. I can usually say on day one whether it's a triable case or not. Um, so for me to be able to take someone who is facing prison time and going through one of the scariest moments of their lives and be able to say from day one, all right, I don't think you're going to go to prison. 
In fact, I know you're not going to go to prison. You're going to get probation. You know, that person can go home and sleep at night. Yeah. So I take a lot of pride in, in knowing my cases, being able to judge a case, and knowing that I can settle a case if it, it needs to be settled. Yeah. The, uh, talking about how a client would vet attorneys, I'm sure you have to do some sort of that of vetting the client as well, of which case that you would take and, and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we get to make a choice as well. And there are times when, when people come in here and, and I just have to say, this isn't the right fit. And I'll politely refer them to, to some other attorneys. So uh, <clears throat> I don't like people who lie to me. Um, I always tell people that I can handle problems, but I can't handle surprises. So I prefer that people be be honest. I mean, if you're going to be honest with anyone, be honest with your attorney, right? Right. Yeah. So if I feel like someone's being dishonest with me, that's a big red flag. And I don't like to, I don't like to deal with people who won't be upfront with me. Yeah. Do you find, uh, a lot of people talk about, um, right now, jujitsu is huge. Um, do you do jujitsu? I don't, I, I, I practice in, in other martial arts oh, before okay. when I was younger, but, uh, I don't like getting hit. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, me neither. Um, martial arts and stuff in general is becoming really popular, and a lot of people who are getting into it are talking about how it's changed other elements of their life, and like it's brought camaraderie, and like it's obviously helped fitness, and like it's a you know, which it's it's like a chess match. You know, the whole thing is like a chess match. Do you find hunting in that? having to have patience and the strategy behind it, has that improved over the years, your ability to do your profession or does it kind of, you, you compartmentalize the two and like one's for fun, one's for business. I would say I compartmentalize pretty well. Um, there, there are strategies that can overlap. Certainly patience. There are certain virtues that, that overlap between the two. Um, however, uh, I certainly compartmentalize in the sense that when I'm hunting, that's my time to block the rest of it out. Although I have to admit sitting in a tree stand and nothing's happening. I mean, I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can dust through emails like like nothing other. I mean, I can get way more work done in a tree stand than I can sitting in my office with all the distractions. Yeah, oh yeah. So unfortunately, sometimes I'm not completely blocked out. I'm I'm kind of always working at least in my mind. Uh so uh but it's also kind of a good thing. I mean, I can I can enjoy my hobby and also be working at the same time. Yeah. I I was reading one of the plaques that you had out in the lobby of uh, the case with the two um, the child abuse cases. Mm -hmm. um, that one's I think, is interesting because it kind of, it involves, like, all of your different avenues that you, you have here, criminal, personal injury, and family law. Mm -hmm. How are you able to psychologically get through hard cases like that that's a really good question and, and one that I'm asked a lot in, in, in my only 
or at least my best answer is I think God just made me this way. Uh, I, I think God puts certain people on this earth to do certain things. And hopefully for everyone, we all find our calling with something that we're good at and that we enjoy doing. And I think this, the practice of law is it for me. Right. Uh, going back to compartmentalization, I shut it off at five o'clock. Hmm. So um, not to say that I don't ever go home and do work after hours, but from a psychological perspective, I, I shut it off pretty well. Yeah. And, and I think I, I don't use any specific technique. I don't have any training for doing that. Mm-hmm. I think God just made me that way. Yeah, that's it's really cool to hear that. Um, you know, like I, I know a lot of people that work with attorneys over the years. They've been through this round robin of attorneys that, that got recommended and stuff like that. And I I feel like talking to them, there's a general consensus that there's like a lack of caring. And I don't know if it just people get jaded from being in the profession for so long. No, it, it like family law can be super taxing if that's all you do ever. Um, I think it's it's really cool to hear that there are still attorneys out there that do care. You know? They do, and we do, and I do. I mean, I I, I do get jaded, yeah, uh, and and I I have to constantly remind myself, uh, and, and I and I pray about this as well. Uh, I, this is a prayer that I've that I've had ever since I first started practicing law was to remember that there's a human being on the other side of my desk. Yeah, uh, it can be um, it can be easy to become jaded sometimes and start to forget mm-hmm. that you're dealing with a a real human yeah. in the other end, and uh, and again that human's experience is going to dictate whether I bring home a paycheck or not. So um, not only do I care, but from a business perspective, I have to do my best to provide a good experience for that other human being. Right. Do uh, I, Branson's not very big, right? It's one of the, I mean, it's a bigger city and it's small in area, small in population, but huge in visitors. Right. Okay. So at any given time, we could have half a million people in yeah. town. Do you represent in uh, other parts of Missouri or is it just Branson that you I travel all over? Travel? Yeah. For the most part, I'm, I'm around Southwest Missouri, but, uh, but I've taken cases in Kansas City and St. Louis. Okay. I have, I have federal cases in Washington, D.C. Oh, from wow. the Capitol riot. Uh, uh, Cases that I'm doing now. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Do you, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how it goes exactly with all the COVID lockdowns and stuff like that, but have you had anything, any residual off of of that whole? For, for about a year, we were, we learned to practice because you can't cut, shut the courts down, right? It's like you can't shut a nursing home down or you can't shut. Hospital down. New York did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> generally speaking, you can't shut the courts down. Yeah. You have people who are who are in jail waiting trial. Uh, you you have people who who have issues that have to be litigated. But we learned how to practice remotely. So we did uh, a ton of of hearings. In fact, 
pretty much all hearings for a certain amount of time uh, by by video conference or by phone. So yeah, we we did have to make some changes during COVID, uh, and then there became a certain time where we slowly transitioned back into court by by limiting the number of people who could come to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously the judges and attorneys, and then the clients were let in, and then other people were let. So there was a slow transition period after COVID uh, of of allowing courts to go back to normal. Right. Um. I don't even know if I want to bring this up, but with the the vaccine and stuff and things coming about, certain health injuries and stuff coming from the vaccine, potentially, do you see that as being some crazy, like, class action lawsuit that happens? Or is it just going to be a bunch of little things for the end of time? You know, I guess we'll eventually find out. But, you know, for now, I mean, I I know the vaccine was was fast-tracked. I know that there wasn't um, there wasn't the same type of dedicated clinical trials that we would have with other vaccines or other medicines. So I think you know whether uh, whichever side you stand on on pro or anti vaccine. I mean, none of us really know if we will see some type of adverse result later on down the road yeah yeah i know that recently there was a uh like big class action lawsuit you see it on facebook all the time like the earplug thing mm-hmm. with uh the military you got ample june water contamination and it's almost like clockwork like every 20 25 years is when the big lawsuit happens i was stationed in camp june north carolina and i can tell you like they didn't fix anything with water. Oh my gosh. Water's still bad. Yeah. But I was there after the 86, like 1986 or whatever. So I'm just like, okay, well, hopefully I don't get cancer by the time this thing comes out, you know? So just, I don't know. I feel like it's uh job security for you though. For sure. Well, yeah. I mean, that's certainly something that COVID did not change. I mean, like I said, people still have to litigate. There are always people who get in trouble. There are always people who are are unfortunately going to be injured. And unfortunately, there are always people who are going to get divorced and fight over custody of their children and property. Right. So that's just not going to stop. I don't don't think there will ever be any issue with with job security for attorneys. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a type of business where the inventory, uh, and, and the demand is potentially limitless. Do you, uh, with this office, do you plan on expanding quite a bit? Or so that that's been a tough question for me because I'm busy enough that I could hire more people, but I'm also stubborn enough that. I like where I'm at. I like where I like the people I work with. And I'm a little bit afraid of change. Mm. So uh, part of me thinks that I have the, the, the civil obligation to try to grow my business and, and create more jobs. But I also have a family to look out for. And that's number one to me. So uh, I know I'm making money now. I, I'm comfortable with the amount of money that I make. and, mm-hmm. and we have a pretty good system here in this little tiny piece of the pie, and and I'm right. 
I'm pretty satisfied with the way it is. It'll be the the moment when the Hunt Co. like surpasses the the law firm. Yeah, and you're so, like now I can retire. Yeah, yeah. So so from a business perspective, I think of the Hunt Co. You know, a lot of people will will buy hobby firms. Right. Yeah. So uh, I work full time, but I'm also gonna gonna become a part time farmer as a tax write off. Okay. And I remember thinking at one point, how can I make my hobby work for me financially? Right. And that's what the Hunt Co. is. Uh, I've I've been able to use use the Hunt Co. as uh, a lot of or a lot of extra tax write-offs. Um, no, that's cool. I could enjoy. Never even thought of. I that could, yeah, I can enjoy my hobby, uh, but also benefit financially from it because sure. I'm technically, according to the IRS, a professional hunter. So uh, I get the benefit of the tax awesome. benefits from that. Huh. Interesting. I look into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's all become professional hunters now. Yeah, man. I don't know if I want that because I want something to hunt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, Joe, I appreciate you letting me come up here to Branson and visit with you, talk with you for a little bit. Do you have any final thoughts for? I, I think I would just direct people. You know, I, this hobby of mine, the Hunt Co. Uh, I would just just like to plug myself and and say this is something that uh, that I've my heart and effort into and I, I truly want it to be a positive experience for people and something that encourages and motivates other people to get into hunting or to stay into hunting if they're already hunting. So uh, go to YouTube, go to Amazon Prime, search Huntco, H-U-N-T-C-O, uh, and, uh, and check it out. Uh, uh, as, as we always say, like and subscribe. All right. Well, that does it, everybody. I, uh, if you, if you have liked, shared, subscribed, followed all the stuff, I appreciate, appreciate what you do. Uh, I'm not doing any advertising, so word of mouth is where this is going. I'm not very big yet, but maybe one day we'll get a lot of viewers on here and then business will just skyrocket. Yeah. I'm not very big. I'm not very big yet either. So we, we can, we can both hope, right? Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks again. And, uh, we'll see y'all later.